It's Thursday, July 26th, and this is The Daily Dive. The tape has been leaked. Secret recordings between then-candidate Trump and his longtime fixer Michael Cohen was released to CNN. Many have been waiting for this audio to drop, but what does it actually show? It's not a smoking gun of any kind, but it does point to a scandal suppression operation for Trump. Blake Houndshell, editor-in-chief of Politico magazine, joins us to discuss what the tape says and what it all means. Next, what does it really take to be an astronaut and handle the extreme environment of space? Panicking while in space can be deadly, so how does one train to stay alive in emergencies? Corey Powell, contributing writer to NBC News, joins us to talk about the intense training astronauts go through and what the key things are they must learn in order to make it in space. Finally, remember when President Trump met with Kim Jong-un and said that they will be taking steps to denuclearize. Well, it looks like they actually might be coming to the table. Satellite images are showing that North Korea has started dismantling a rocket launch site. We still have a long way to go, but they are steps in the right direction. Alexandria Sage, reporter for Reuters, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Michael Cohen has an answer to why he taped conversations, and I think he'll have to give that answer himself. I can't reveal that, but I will say that Michael Cohen has turned a corner in his life, and he's now dedicated to telling the truth. Joining us now is Blake Houndshell, editor-in-chief of Politico magazine. So CNN was able to obtain the secret Trump-Cohen tapes that everybody had been talking about. Michael Cohen, his longtime lawyer, secretly recorded a conversation that he had with then-candidate Trump about buying the rights to a story, to silence the story of Karen McDougal, who was a former Playboy model. What exactly did we hear in these tapes? Well, you know, it's disputed what we're hearing. Trump's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, claims the tape is exculpatory. Nothing to see here. Whereas Trump's critics, they're saying that this is damning evidence. There was Trump, first of all, knew about this affair and that he wanted to hush up evidence of it before the election. And there's a lot of legal chatter among former prosecutors and types like that who Say this could be evidence that Trump intended to commit election fraud by not letting the public have access to this information. The tape is about two minutes long. Uh, most of it is irrelevant, really. Michael Cohen comes in and talks about a, some CNN poll. They talk about a lawsuit from the New York Times to unseal divorce papers from his marriage to Ivana. So they talk about a, a little bit of stuff. And then at the very end, and like you said, this is where it gets tricky, they talk about setting up some company to help pay off this uh, hush money to uh, Karen McDougal. Let's get into that part. And there's the discrepancy over if the president said something about paying with cash or not. When it comes time for the financing, which will be... What financing? We'll have to pay you. So no, pay no, 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 no. I got... No, no, no. Hey, no, how are you? The details will matter. What's going on, it seems to me, is that Cohen and future President Trump we're talking about buying the rights to Karen McDougal's story from the National Enquirer. Uh, the owner of the National Enquirer, a guy named David Pecker, is a close friend of President Trump. Carried a lot of water for him over the years, attacked his enemies and promoted Trump. Basically what they're saying is Karen McDougal had agreed to sell her story, the right to her story of her affair with or alleged affair with Donald Trump to the Enquirer. 
The Inquirer pulled off what's called a catch and release, where they bought the rights to her story and then buried it. But it sounded like Trump and Cohen were concerned that Pecker might either disappear somehow or get cold feet, change his mind. So they thought, just to make double secret, double sure, we better buy the property right to this story to make sure that it goes away. And then they talk about $150,000. The tape is really unintelligible at parts. Reports are saying that Michael Cohen was making this recording maybe like on his phone or something like that so you can hear the shuffling happen when the recording starts you know you can hear him like the you know the recording starts then shuffling yeah, it sounds as, as like it, it was in his pocket yeah he puts it in his pocket he's obviously a lot clearer than the president is and then that's where the trouble comes in you can't hear if the president is saying let's pay in cash or no and you know cohen says no 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 i got it don't worry about it so that's really where uh, all of this is the raid on michael cohen's office all stemmed out of the Mueller investigation this stuff really doesn't have anything to do with the Russian collusion or the Russia investigation. But this did stem off from that. Obviously, we know the president had been denying this stuff all the time. Now we know that he did it. He knew about it. Where does this put us now? What we hear from people in and around the White House is that they're actually more concerned about this investigation than they are on, on some level of the Russia investigation. And I think the reason is that they, they kind of know what they're dealing with with the Russia probe. Veterans of the campaign were around at the time there would be any allegations involving collusion. But Michael Cohen is sort of a black box. He's known Trump for a long time. He's been his fixer for many years. And a lot of what he may or may not have done for Trump is something that's known only to those two men and perhaps their lawyers at this point. You know, it's done out of the Southern District of New York, which is an aggressive, experienced prosecutorial shop that's put away a lot of people for white-collar crimes. It's a different kettle of fish than the sprawling Russia investigation that ultimately may end up, if not exonerating President Trump of collusion, but being inconclusive. Right. But, you know, a guy like Michael Cohen uh, knows where a lot of bodies are buried. And the way that he's conducted himself by showing a little more leg every day suggests that he wants something from Trump, perhaps a you know preemptive pardon or a promise of a pardon in exchange for not cooperating with prosecutors. And it seems like President Trump has gotten his back up. You know, he's what kind of lawyer he tweeted, what kind of lawyer would record a conversation like that with his client? Well, it's that kind of lawyer that yeah, it's a kind of lawyer that is a fixer, you know, the guy that you go to to help make these types of problems right. go away. He's sort of like that Harvey Keitel character in cult fiction, if you <laughs> right. recall. Exactly. The guy who comes in and cleans up the mess. Beyond all that, I mean, this is really just about exposing, you know, these efforts that President Trump was trying to hush up some scandals before the election. Really, we're just talking about some uh, maybe bank fraud, wire fraud, campaign finance laws. The reason the money is important is because two reasons. One is if Cohen did not disclose, if he, if he got a loan, as has been reported, if he got a loan to cover some of these payments while Trump was, was waiting for Trump to reimburse him, and he didn't tell the bank why he needed the money, if he gave fraudulent reasons for that, that could be bank fraud. And if they didn't report the money, the expenditure on FEC federally required campaign finance reports. That could be a violation of campaign finance law. Now, the fly in the ointment here is that the FEC, the Federal Election Commission, is kind of deadlocked. It's uh, got a commission that's got Democratic and Republican members, and they have a hard time prosecuting. It tend to be kind of a rubber stamp. We'll see if that leads anywhere, but he's certainly in some legal jeopardy here, and perhaps in a more clear way than he would be with the Mueller probe. Blake Houndshell, editor-in-chief for Political Magazine, thank you very much for joining us. 
Thank you, Oscar. Thanks for having me. The two missions at IRON, uh, both were shuttle missions to serve as Hubble Space Telescope. The Hubble Space Telescope that I worked on in space, we attached a docking ring to it so that when it starts to do this, when it starts to re-enter the planet, we are going to send up a rocket motor to attach to the telescope and guide it down into the planet into the it, harmlessly. Joining us now is Corey Powell. He's a contributing writer to NBC News. He also is a contributing editor to Discover Magazine, American Scientist. He's a writer on Bill Nye Saves the World. So he's been he's all in the science world right now. Thanks for joining us, Corey. Anytime I can save the world, I'm always happy to join you. <laughs> so we found uh, one of your articles for NBC News. Panic in space can be deadly. Here's how astronauts train to stay alive in emergencies. And I just love these types of stories. You know, as kids, you always grow up saying, I want to be an astronaut when I grow up. And there's a really a lot that goes into it. And this story in particular, you imagine I need to be a super science guy, a super tech guy. And that's true. But in this particular story, you know, a lot of these space adventures really start off in the wilderness on Earth. And you start your story by talking about astronaut Michael Massimino. Tell us a little bit about that. Every time I talk to these astronauts, it's kind of surprising because you have a picture in your head of what an NASA astronaut is. You know, we've all been kind of groomed by these pictures of you know, the right stuff. Mike Massimino is this big, boisterous, genial guy from Long Island. He's got the, like, the full, deep Brooklyn, Long Island accent. He's a real funny, back-slapping kind of guy. And so I thought, if there's anybody who's going to give me the feeling of what it's actually like there, what it actually feels like for an ordinary person to be out in space, this is the guy to talk to. He was out on a spacewalk, and this was in 2009, trying to fix the Hubble Space Telescope. There was a stripped bolt. He needed to remove it to get a, to a crucial piece of hardware. And he was having a really hard time. The stress levels were off the charts. Let me paint a little bit of context here. First of all, this is a mission that, that followed fairly closely after the Columbia Space Shuttle disaster. NASA had basically decided, we're not going to repair the Hubble Space Telescope. It's too dangerous. It sends astronauts far away from the space station. So if anything goes wrong, there's no backup. If the space shuttle fails, we don't know that we can rescue them. And then a new NASA administrator came in and said, you know, I think we've made enough progress here. I think this is important enough. We should run the risk. So... Here's Mike Massimino. First of all, he thinks he's not going to do this mission, mission at all because it's too likely that he's going to die. Then he gets, oh, oh, no, no, good luck. You actually get to go on this high-risk mission. <laughs> That's the first step. Now he's up there. In addition to all the pressure of trying to repair this iconic multi-billion dollar telescope, he also has this very awareness that anything that goes wrong on his mission, it's very high stakes just in terms of life or death. And here he is. And the mission's going well. He's trying to pull off a panel on the telescope. It wasn't designed to be repaired by human hands, so it was never designed to open it up like this. He's trying to pull it open so that he can get into its guts and basically be like a, you know like an auto mechanic in space, and he cannot get this thing open. There's this one bolt that's stuck. And so he's sitting there, sweating in his spacesuit, thinking, I'm at risk of death. I've got this multi-billion dollar telescope. The entire world is waiting for me to finish this job. This is the culmination of my career, 20 years trying to be an astronaut, and there's a stuck bolt, and it's all going to fail. You can imagine what's going on in, the, in his mind at this moment. On the one hand, he's working with the most incredible job in the world, and he's about to totally fail at it. In the end, I saw that he had to really just brute force it. He got the panel off, and he was able to repair the telescope. 
But all of this, the culmination of his career, but it is also the culmination of his training. They put them through rigorous training and survival training. Some of these guys get thrown in a jungle with little to no supplies. It's like a weird episode of Naked and Afraid or something, and they have to survive out there. And this survival training, they put all the astronauts through it. These are the things that really prepare them for when they are in the space in weightlessness and faced with these problems. They have to really uh, use that training to solve these uh, issues. Right. I had several opportunities to talk to different NASA astronauts. And in fact, Mike Massimino is somebody I've met a number of times. And I've tried to ask the question of sort of what I imagined survival training is. I imagined it as it's this thing where you learn how not to have fear of death. And you learn, you know, in any situation, you know, these sort of MacGyver-like tricks. And I kept asking questions and I kept getting these answers that really were not what I was expecting. The survival training, yes, they throw the astronauts out into the wilderness. They throw them out into the jungles of the Philippines or onto a frozen lake in Canada. I mean, those are some of the standard places that NASA goes to train the astronauts. But what they learn there, surprisingly, is not how to survive in an intense situation. Because honestly, once you go up in space, you don't really need the same kind of skills that you would need to survive on a frozen lake or on the edge of a cliff or in the jungle. What you really need is you need to master your own fears. You need to think clearly and think in terms of problem solving in every situation. And you need to be able to understand your own psychology so that you know when to stop listening to your own inner voice and when to let other people talk you down. Even if you're in this crazy situation as Massimino was, you know, you're hanging upside down, you're weightless, the earth is underneath you, you're wrestling with a with a billion dollar space telescope. There are all these things going on in your head and you have to shut off all the voices except for the ones that will let you finish the job. That is the real lesson of the survival training is not how to avoid getting eaten by a tiger, but really <laughs> right. you know, no matter what situation you're in, how to turn off your panic response, turn on your logic response and be prepared to listen to other people telling you what to do, even if it doesn't make sense to you. There's sort of things that go against human instinct. And when the astronauts talk about them, at first I have to admit, I was disappointed at hearing those answers because I wanted to hear, <laughs> oh, you know, when you learn how to kill a tiger with your bare hands, of course you can do these things. Right. But that's not, it's not really <laughs> the skill they're learning. What they're learning is something a little more subtle and maybe a little, uh, you know, when they talk about it, they sound almost like they're about to sing Kumbaya or something. Right. Well, <laughs> they, they, often, they often sound very, you know, very almost like spiritual about it. You have to kind of overcome certain fears and things within yourself, specifically with Massimino, he, he there's a point in his training where he's rappelling down a canyon and stuff and he's like uh, scrambling on high rock ledges and he's like, I'm, I don't like heights. And I read that as like, you don't like heights, but you want to be an astronaut going to the highest heights of all time. But as you said, you know, you need to overcome that stuff. You need to learn to trust your partners on those space missions. You always have somebody in your ear guiding you along what to do next. You have to learn how to trust those parts, even if it's counterintuitive to what you might think is right. We probably all know people or maybe are people who are actors who have stage fright, writers who have writer's block, people who do things in their lives that really go against what you're good at or that face directly into your fear. That's true with a lot of astronauts. Here's an astronaut who has his fear of heights. He doesn't like the outdoors. In many ways, he seems like the, you know, the least likely guy, and yet he turned out to be a brilliant astronaut because trying to overcome those things actually pointed him in exactly the direction that he needed to go. 
Corey Powell, science writer on Bill Nye Saves the World, contributing editor to Discover Magazine, American Scientist. He wrote this piece for NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's a great to have a chance to talk about this a little more. New images just today show that North Korea has begun the process of dismantling a key missile site, and we appreciate that. We had a fantastic meeting with Chairman Kim, and it seems to be going very well. Joining us now is Alexandria Sage, reporter for Reuters. It's been about six weeks now since the president met with Kim Jong-un of North Korea, and at the time, they came away saying that North Korea is going to work towards dismantling their nuclear program. At first, people were still very skeptical. They said, oh, there's nothing happening yet. Um, And then we have these satellite images that are coming out of this uh, website, 38 North, which tracks North Korea. And they have a ton of images of them actually dismantling one of their rocket launch sites. What have we seen so far? Right, exactly. So this is the Sohei site that appears to be starting to be dismantled. This is a rocket test site in North Korea. And, and as you said, Oscar, we, people have questioned the willingness of the North Koreans for this, um, demantling and, and, um, fully denuclearizing because they have given no concrete details about how they would do that. But in California, Secretary of State Mike um, Pompeo was asked specifically whether he could confirm that the Sohai site was being dismantled. And he said, yes, this was consistent with the commitments that Kim Jong-un made to President Trump at the summit last month in Singapore. And Secretary of State Mike Pompeo really is the point man on this. Uh, Obviously, the president had his meeting with Kim Jong-un, but Mike Pompeo's really working hard behind the scenes to get this all done. He did say that they still need to completely fully denuclearize. um, And and there's been that contention, you know, what does that mean exactly for the North Koreans? Kim Jong-un is not going to let it all go instantly. And we know that right now. But these are so far the dismantling of this site is seen as a, um, you know, some uh, goodwill, a, a measure of goodwill that he's trying to build up with the United States. Sure, this is a, a certainly a confidence-building step, and, um, and and you know he said there are certainly further, much further to go. They have been the U.S. government has been pressing for inspectors to be on the ground ground at that site, and he said that ultimately the the ultimate step, the goal is that they have to go further, and this has to be full denuclearization, and um, they they wouldn't stop until that was accomplished. Another thing that came out of the meeting with uh, the president and Kim Jong-un was that we were going to be, uh, or North Korea was going to return uh, the remains of soldiers killed in the Korean War. Uh, right. Mm-hmm. And I know Mike Pompeo had mentioned something about that. What did he say about the progress with that? Yeah, this he did he did not refer to that, but his Australian counterpart mentioned the fact that we still have servicemen um, from the United States and certainly Australia um, who are still whose remains are still in North Korea. A U.S. defense official said last week that there are 50 sets of remains that they hope um, the North Koreans will return, and again, that would be yet another a step of confidence. Alexandria Sage, reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much.
All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. We love the feedback, so don't forget to leave us a comment and give us a rating. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>